BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Bonita Springs, Florida. The city of almost 54,000 residents is located along the southwest coast of the Florida Panhandle. Bonita Springs traces its roots to 1513 when Juan Ponce de Leon landed along the Florida shoreline and claimed the land for Spain. Ponce de Leon named this new Spanish colony La Florida. During the 16th and 17th centuries, Spain established small forts and missions across the area. The territory officially became part of the United States in 1821 after signing a treaty with Spain. In the 1870s, Army Corps of Engineers surveyors mapped remote southwest Florida and pitched camp in the area. After the crew left, the area and later community became known and recorded on maps as survey. The community grew over the years, and in the 20th century, more homesteaders arrived. In 1910, a two-story hotel was in business, catering to visitors attracted to the unspoiled area's bounty of hunting and fishing. The city's name was eventually changed to Bonita Springs after developers decided the name Survey would not help draw people to the area. Bonita Springs is now an affluent community with the residents enjoying sunny days and sparkling water. But in 2015, life was anything but sunny for the family of one young doctor who was brutally murdered in her own home. Before we start with our story, we wanted to let y'all know that we are coming to Austin, Texas. This Friday through Sunday, August 25th, 26th, and 27th, we will have a booth at the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. Along with many of your other favorite true crime podcasters, there will be exhibitions, there will be vendors, and we will have free giveaways at our booth for everybody who comes by, and we will have some merchandise for sale, including t-shirts, while supplies last. So if you live in the Austin area or want to take a trip to Austin, go to truecrimepodcastfestival.com for more information on the weekend and to purchase tickets. We hope to see you there. In 2015, Mark and Teresa Seavers lived in Bonita Springs with their two young daughters who were 10 and 7 years old. 46-year-old Teresa was a doctor who received her medical degree from Ross University School of Medicine in Barbados. She completed her residency at the University of Florida and was board certified in internal medicine. 
Together with her husband, they opened a practice called Restorative Health and Healing Center. The family was very involved in their community. Teresa regularly appeared at meetings and events for her practice and at speaking engagements with her colleagues. She strongly believed in the importance of empowering women. And in February 2015, the two young Seavers girls raised $2,500 for a local charity by making and selling $5 bracelets. The charity was called Our Mother's Home, and it provides shelter and care for teen mothers in the foster care system or who are victims of human trafficking or other traumas. Teresa Seavers taught a weekly parenting class for the shelter's residents. Teresa was originally from Connecticut, and many of her family members still lived in the Northeast. On June 26, 2015, Teresa and Mark took their two daughters on vacation to New York and Connecticut to celebrate her mother's 75th birthday. Teresa had to come home early because of a work commitment, but Mark and their daughters were planning to stay for a few more days and return home on July 1st. So Teresa flew home alone on June 28th and texted Mark a little after 11 p.m. to let him know she'd arrived safely. The next morning at around 9.30, Mark called family friend Dr. Mark Petritus and told him someone from their medical practice had just called him and let him know that Teresa did not show up for work that morning. He asked Dr. Petritus to stop by their house on the way to work and check on Teresa. And Mark gave him their garage code just in case the front door was locked. When Dr. Petritus got to the Seaver's house, he knocked on the front door. And when nobody answered, he went around the house, banging and knocking on the windows. But there was no response from inside the house. He then used the garage code Mark gave him. And as soon as he opened the door from the garage to the house, one of the dogs ran out. As he walked in the door, he was able to see straight into the kitchen. And what he saw was Teresa Seavers lying on the tile in a pool of blood. At 9.42 a.m., Dr. Petritus called 911. Detectives and supervisors with the Lee County Sheriff's Office Homicide Violent Crimes Unit were notified and were directed to the house to begin their investigation. When they arrived, they followed the same route Dr. Petritus took when he went through the garage first. Before entering the house, they checked the side door in the garage that led to the backyard, and they noticed pry marks. Inside the garage, they observed that Teresa's luggage was there and looked like someone had gone through it. When detectives entered the house, they saw Teresa lying face down next to a hammer that appeared to have blood and hair on it. She was completely dressed and was wearing several items of jewelry. Her wallet was nearby and had clearly been rifled through, but it did not appear as if anything had been taken. None of the other rooms in the house appeared to have been disturbed. So, Kath, the reason that the police knew that the wallet had been rifled through was that the American Express card had clearly been taken out of one of the slots and not put back. But what was strange to them is if somebody had messed with this card, they had still left all the cash in the wallet. Not to mention her jewelry. True. None of the other rooms in the house appeared to have been disturbed. Dr. Petritus remained at the scene and told detectives what happened in greater detail. He said that after he saw Teresa, he noticed a hammer lying next to her. He told detectives that as a doctor, he knelt down next to her to check to see if he should begin life-saving measures. However, she was cold to the touch and beyond help. It looked to him like her head had been bashed in. 
After that, he was afraid that the person who killed Teresa might still be in the house, so he went back outside and called 911. Investigators asked if he knew anyone who wanted to hurt Teresa and whether she and Mark had a solid relationship. Dr. Petritus responded that he didn't know who could harm her, and he described their marriage as seeming to be good. He also told detectives that he had been friends with Teresa for 20 years and had not noticed her acting any differently or anything out of the ordinary in the last few weeks. You know what I thought was interesting, Kathy, too, is his phrasing of this, and that was a quote, as you know, he did not say he was friends with Teresa's husband, Mark. Oh, that's true. He was very specific. He had been friends with Teresa for 20 years. So, Kath, sheriff's deputies conducted two extensive canvases of the Seavers neighborhood. But what appeared to be the most important conversation they had, Kath, with the neighbors is that one woman who lived next door to the Seavers said that on June 29th, so this is just a few hours after Teresa arrived home, she was awakened by a scream at approximately 2 a.m. The police were using the timing of this to kind of give a rough estimate of when Teresa's murder may have happened. And then, of course, when they talk to the other neighbors, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, you have those people who are like, oh, yeah, they were the worst people in the world and they did this and this and we don't know if it's true. Or they were like, oh, that serial killer seemed like such a happy boy. He was such a nice person. Exactly. So water my grass one day. (laughs) After he killed my dog. (laughs) (laughs) So this was no exception. Investigators talked to some neighbors who said, oh, I used to hear them argue a lot. And others said, no, they really didn't argue a lot. And one said, oh, they argued a lot, but I don't think he was ever physically violent. And then the other one said, oh, no, she was the aggressor. So I'm not really sure how much more they got out of the canvas other than knowing kind of an approximate time when this may have happened. But certainly they were very thorough in talking to the neighbors to try and get as much information as they could. The day after Teresa's body was found, Lee County Medical Examiner Dr. Thomas Coyne conducted the autopsy. Based on his findings, Dr. Coyne concluded that Teresa Seaver's cause of death was homicide by blunt force trauma. He documented that she had at least 17 crescent-shaped and irregular lacerations on her head. Interestingly, authorities did not release Teresa's cause of death. When Mark Seavers received the call that his wife had been murdered, he was distraught. So he gathered up the kids and he flew home immediately, but of course, couldn't go to his own house, so he actually stayed with a friend. He met with investigators from the sheriff's office at his friend's house and went through with detectives the timeline of where the Seavers had been before Teresa came home. Mark told detectives about taking their daughters on vacation to Connecticut and New York to celebrate his mother-in-law's 75th birthday. He and his daughters planned to spend a few more days there, even though Teresa had to leave early for a work commitment. His in-laws wanted to spend more time with their grandchildren, so he and his daughters planned to spend a few more days in Connecticut. The last time Mark heard from Teresa was when she texted him on the night of June 28th to let him know that she had safely landed, gotten something to eat, and was leaving the airport parking garage. Mark also told detectives that when he learned Teresa had not shown up for work the following morning, he tracked her phone and it showed that it was at their residence. But when Mark was not able to get a hold of her, he reached out to her friend, Dr. Petritus, to check on her. In response to their questions, he said he did not know of anyone who wanted to hurt his wife. He also told detectives that he and Teresa had a good marriage, but that the two of them often got on each other's nerves. He denied any allegation of infidelity and said the two were taking active steps to rekindle their relationship. 
And he let them know that his mother, Bonnie Seavers, was at their house twice a day while his family was on vacation to feed their pets, two dogs and a cat. She had her own code to arm and disarm their alarm system. Mark agreed to meet with detectives three days later at the Lee County Sheriff's headquarters for an additional interview. Detectives were hoping he might be able to give them further leads to find his wife's killer. During this interview, Mark cooperated with detectives' requests and answered all of their questions, and he voluntarily signed a consent-to-search form to allow the contents of his cell phone to be downloaded by deputies. Mark remained adamant that no one in Teresa's life would want her dead. Detectives asked Mark to describe the layout of their house and any tools that were in his garage. They then showed Mark pictures of two hammers that were found at the scene. Mark could not confirm one way or the other whether these were his, and when asked about the pry marks found on the exterior garage door, he stated they were not there before the family left on vacation. These were something he would have noticed. During this interview, detectives asked more detailed questions about their marriage. Mark told them that in past years, they had experimented with other partners as well as swinging. I'll be honest with you, Kathy. I don't get the swingers lifestyle. Not to shame anybody, but I just can't. But to shame, but to shame Not people. Not to shame, but I just don't understand why you're like exposing parts to people you don't know when you're happily married. Oh my God, that just totally triggered a memory. <laughs> All right, everybody, brace yourselves. We don't know no. what this is going to be. We don't know what it's going to no, be. No, no, no. When my oldest child was born, the doctor who delivered him was not my regular doctor. It was some guy who comes into the hospital to relieve my regular doctor. Is he the one who looked like Tom Cruise? Yes. Or I, not looked like him, but was like pretending to be he him? He like comes into the delivery room wearing 501s and a leather jacket. And of course, by this time, I'm well into this horrible birth experience. <laughs> Love you, B. Yeah. And I remember like he comes in with his leather jacket and it just made me like I was stone cold angry. And I was like, <laughs> oh, Tom Cruise is going to deliver the baby. Like I couldn't shut my mouth. Wow. When did you get that accent? I was so. <laughs> Maybe that was my mom. Anyway, so fast forward. My son is in kindergarten and we're at this like kindergarten thing and I see the doctor and I'm like, oh my God, that's his name. Like I see him on this list. I see the guy and my husband doesn't even recognize him. And I'm like, hey, that's the one who delivered our first kid. I go, do you think if I pull my pants down, he'll recognize me? <laughs> okay. Knowing your husband, did he just walk away? <laughs> no. I was like, come on, I'm funny, I'm funny. He's like, that is not one bit funny. <laughs> Actually, it was. <laughs> so that's what it reminded me of when you said exposing your private parts. <laughs> I'm glad I could help you with that. <laughs> exactly. You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> Please keep listening. <laughs> exactly. Don't give up. <laughs> so back to the swinging. Mark was adamant that Teresa had never secretly cheated on him. Mark could not provide the names or any contact information of any of their swinger friends, but insisted they all parted on good terms. When asked about life insurance policies, Mark told investigators that he and his wife each had two and a half million dollars in life insurance. Mark listed the contents of their home's four safes, which included several guns and one safe that had $40,000. Same. Yeah. <laughs> Mark confirmed that nothing was taken from these safes during the attack on Teresa. 
When asked about the couple's finances, Mark told detectives that despite the 40 large in the safe, (laughs) they usually lived month to month and did not have much financial stability. You know, honestly, you and I talked about this a little bit, but it does amaze me when people make what we perceive to be a lot of money and they are financially unstable. But it also amazes me. Who would have 40 grand in a safe? Like, why do you need 40,000 in cash in your home? Who are you paying with $40,000 cash? A couple of hours after Mark sat down for his second interview with detectives, his mother, Bonnie Seavers, was interviewed by Detective Joe Armato. Bonnie was the last known person inside her son and daughter-in-law's house on June 28th. This was the day Teresa returned from vacation. She described Mark and Teresa's relationship as loving and caring and said they were excellent parents to their two girls. Mark had never expressed any concerns to her that Teresa was being unfaithful. Bonnie said she looked after the two dogs and one cat while the family was on vacation and told the detective when she went to their house to feed the animals on June 26th, this was the day the family left, she noticed that their alarm system was not set. She assumed they were just in a rush to get into the airport and really didn't think about it. But she said she set the alarm when she left after feeding the pets dinner and confirmed to detectives that the following day she set the alarm after feeding the animals breakfast. However, she told Detective Armato that she must have been confused on how to properly set the alarm because she thought she set the alarm when she left on the afternoon of the 27th. This is the day before Teresa arrived home. But when she got to the house on the morning of the 28th, the alarm was not set. She told detectives that she did not set the alarm when she left the evening of the 28th because after she arrived and saw that the alarm was again deactivated, she thought she was just confused about how to actually turn the system on. So she called her son, Mark, to let him know she was having problems. And he told her, just leave the alarm deactivated. Teresa's going to be home this evening. She can take care of it when she gets home. Over the next four days, Bonnie was interviewed two more times by detectives who were seeking clarification on who else was allowed to be at her son's house while the family was on vacation. The answer was no one. But they also wanted the specific times Bonnie was at her son's house on each of the three days when she fed the animals. Detectives also asked Bonnie about the code she used to open the overhead garage door and the alarm code to actually get into the house from the garage. And just to clarify, because Kathy, you and I had talked about it a little bit, where I live at my house, there's a pin pad outside of my garage door. It opens the door. You're still not going to get into the house unless you have a key. In their case, this was a separate code that was for a security system to be able to get into the house. So two different systems, two different numbers. Both of them were assigned to her exclusively. What detectives didn't share with Bonnie is that they were working with Mark and Teresa's alarm company to conduct a review of the alarm system to show when was the alarm activated and deactivated while the Seavers were on vacation. During her interview with detectives, Bonnie told them she did not arrive at the house until 7.45 Sunday morning. This was the day of the murder. This was also the day she told detectives that she didn't think she was setting the alarm correctly because it wasn't activated when she arrived. However, the detectives knew from working with the alarm company that the alarm code provided to Bonnie deactivated that alarm at 6.09 a.m. Detectives wondered why Bonnie would lie about when she arrived and about deactivating the alarm, which made detectives wonder what was she hiding. On the same day his mother was having her third interview at the station, Detective Jamie Nolan attempted to set up another meeting with Mark so she could go over what they learned in the investigation to date. Mark didn't get back to Detective Nolan right away, 
But later in the day, detectives were contacted by a criminal defense attorney, Lee Hollander. Lee advised them that he had been retained by Mark Seavers as counsel and they needed to direct any further contact to him. Detectives had also hoped that Mark could help them with the process of elimination by giving DNA samples from him and his children. Detectives also were asking for palm prints and the names of the people who knew the alarm codes and the garage door code. After several attempts to get in touch with the defense counsel, detectives received a letter saying that Mark Seavers was no longer going to participate in their investigation. Investigators were able to confirm that Mark and Teresa had both been involved in multiple affairs with men and women together and outside of their marriage. Detectives also spoke to a close friend of Teresa's in whom Teresa confided that she was looking at possibly divorcing Mark. After downloading the contents of Mark's cell phone, detectives found that he had not been entirely truthful with them on the state of his marriage. They discovered lots of photos, videos, FaceTime chats, all that kind of stuff that showed numerous extramarital affairs with multiple women, despite the fact that he said they only mutual enjoyed swinging, but otherwise were happy. Well, he also said they mutually enjoyed having affairs with people, but they were aware of it. Right. Detectives also learned that Mark had started documenting their marital issues on his notes app to include talk of divorce lack of intimacy, and his wife's harsh emotional treatment of him. But just because Mark had multiple affairs, it did not mean that he was a murderer. The marriage vows appeared to be treated in the same fashion by both Mark and Teresa. But nonetheless, detectives had to pursue every lead. I don't understand why people lie to police about affairs, anything else, He gave them permission to dump his phone. And all it does, if they're not involved, is it wastes police time looking at them instead of somebody else who might actually be the real killer. But I do think that people don't realize that sometimes it's not 100% perfect, but you delete things, sometimes it could be recovered. Most times it can be recovered. Well, I don't know if it's most. It It is is most times. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, you know. There's precious little you can delete that is deleted. It's terrifying, actually. But that's why the whole point is, why are you lying? They will find out. And now they're going to be like, all right, liar. Mm -hmm. What else did you lie about? Right. You're a lying liar who lies. Wow, that was really eloquent. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Just a couple of days later, detectives got an interesting phone call from Police Chief Jeff Hamilton with the Southern Illinois Airport Authority. Seems kind of random, but he told detectives that he might have information on their current murder case. However... The story the chief told the detectives was so convoluted and contained not one, not two, but three layers of hearsay. Because of this, detectives weren't confident that whatever the chief had to say to them was going to pan out. What the chief told detectives was that an acquaintance of his had contacted him and told him that they might have information about Teresa Seaver's murder. The detectives talked to the informant directly to find out the story they had. And just to be clear, the name of this informant was not made public, nor were initials made public. So we're just calling them the informant. The informant told detectives that on June 27th, she was at her friend Kathy's house, not to be confused with two podcasters, (laughs) and she was in Missouri, and Kathy's 43-year-old daughter Angela was with them. Angela was apparently upset and complaining to her mom that Wayne, her husband of two months, had just dipped, you're welcome, for an unplanned (laughs) trip out of state. 
He told her he was going to help a friend fix a computer and she wanted to go on the road trip with him. But her husband told her she couldn't go because she needed to go to work and make some money. The informant was aware that Angela and her husband Wayne were so poor that Angela's parents had to regularly buy food for them to make sure they were eating. Because while Angela... Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither. (laughs) Despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C as a waitress, Wayne was actually on disability. The informant told detectives that two days later, on July 29th, she was again talking to Kathy, who told her that Angela's husband had just called to let his wife know he was back from his trip. Now, detectives had been patiently listening to this story, much as you all are, (laughs) (laughs) but it was finally rewarded when all of the connections were made. As it turns out, the computer Angela's husband Wayne went to fix was 1,200 miles away in Florida, and it belonged to one of his closest friends since high school, Mark Seavers. Mark's best friend was Curtis Wayne Wright Jr., but he went by Wayne. Based on the information given to the detectives by the informant, police obtained a search warrant for Wayne Wright's home in Missouri. At the home, they seized Wright's cell phone, and the GPS actually showed that the phone was in Missouri the whole time. However, information they got from his text messages and call logs connected Wright to another man named Jimmy Ray Rogers. And Kath, although Wright's cell phone said that he had not left Missouri during the two days, He had to rent a car because his wife had actually wrecked his and it was getting fixed. 
Detectives from Florida became aware of this, contacted the rental company, and were given the car that Wright had driven to Florida, which also had a GPS. So detectives obtained a search warrant for this vehicle, which was a Hyundai Elantra. They went to the rental company and were able to take possession of the car so they could search the vehicle and its GPS. What the GPS showed was this vehicle traveled from Wayne Wright's home to Jimmy Rogers' home to Mark Seaver's home, exactly in that order. So even though the phone they found in Missouri in Wayne Wright's home had not left the state, it did show a lot of calls and text messages to Jimmy Rogers. When detectives executed a search warrant on Rogers' residence, they met his girlfriend, Taylor, who happened to be expecting their first child. Taylor led authorities to evidence connecting Rogers to the crime. Now, Kath, I don't believe she knew she was doing this, but she led them straight to a backpack, shoes, shirts, and a beverage cooler that had been purchased at Lee County, Florida in a Walmart on the day of the murder. Taylor also brought detectives to the site where she and Rogers had discarded the coveralls worn during the murder, as well as pieces of Rogers' deconstructed prepaid cell phone. The Lee County Sheriff's Office had not released much information to the public during their investigation, saying they wanted to ensure the integrity of the case. Lee County Sheriff Mike Scott insisted that Teresa Seaver's murder was a priority for his office and his folks would do their job and would not rest until somebody was in custody. He stressed, however, that Teresa's homicide was not arbitrary. And Kath, this was the word he used, arbitrary. I saw that and I know he was trying to placate the public and make sure they knew there wasn't a threat to them in general. Right. I think he was trying to communicate this was a specific target because right now, remember, he hasn't even released her cause of death to the public. Everybody knows that this doctor died, but nobody knows how. Two months after Teresa's murder on August 27, 2015, two men were arrested in Missouri in connection with her death. At a news conference held the same day, Sheriff Mike Scott announced that Curtis Wainwright Jr., 47 years old, and Jimmy Rogers, 25, faced second-degree murder charges. Second-degree murder in Florida is basically murder with what they call a depraved mind. So it's when a person is killed without premeditation. Wright and Rogers met, as it turns out, in a Missouri jail five years prior. The Florida sheriff noted that Wright had been friends with Teresa's husband, Mark, since they were in the ninth grade in rural Hillsborough, Missouri. The sheriff would not answer any questions from reporters, but did say that this was the most complicated, intricate set of circumstances they had ever seen. According to an article in the Naples Daily News by Christina Gill, Jessica Lipscomb, and Jacob Carpenter, those who knew Mark and Wayne in their hometown were not surprised that Wayne was involved. Some who knew Wayne from back in the day said that he had a bad reputation primarily because he had gotten into drugs. When Wayne Wright was arrested, he was living in Halesborough with his new wife and they'd only been married four months. Now, Jimmy Rogers had a long rap sheet and was convicted of his first felony in Missouri when he was 17 years old. At the time he was arrested for Teresa Seaver's murder, he was on probation for being a felon in possession of a firearm. Kath, I don't remember how many felonies each of these guys had, but each of them had multiple felonies. 
I think Wayne's was five. Okay. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think Rogers was seven. Okay. But what's striking about that is that Wayne is 22 years older than Rogers. But those are only felonies since he was 17. That's crazy. I know. On Wednesday, December 2nd, 2015, this is just over five months after Teresa Seavers was killed, the headline of the local newspaper, the Naples Daily News, read, Husband Helped Orchestrate Killing. In an article by Jessica Lipscomb, Jacob Carpenter, and Ryan Mills, a trove of documents was released the day prior by the state attorney's office, and all of this was related to Teresa Seavers' murder case. In the documents was an affidavit that for the first time identified Mark Seavers, who had not been charged in this case, as being directly tied to the murder of his wife, along with Wayne Wright and Jimmy Rogers. The newly released details included the salacious gossip about the Seavers' extramarital affairs and proclivity for swinging, as well as information that Mark had five life insurance policies under his wife's name totaling $4.43 million. Mark promised his friend Wright that he would pay him an undisclosed amount from the insurance policies for killing his wife. Now, the affidavit stated that due to the totality of the investigation up to that point, detectives believed that Wright and Mark Seavers were involved in the initial planning of the murder of Mark's wife, Teresa. Wright then enlisted the assistance of Rogers and traveled to Bonita Springs together with the intent to end Teresa's life. Sheriff Scott was asked why Mark Seavers had not been arrested, and the sheriff responded, the case is still active. The affidavit also revealed that Mark and his childhood friend Wright were in almost daily contact via text message since 2011, four years prior to the murder. Mark was actually in Missouri in May of 2015, this was two months before his wife died, when he went there to be the best man at Wright's wedding. It was during the wedding weekend that detectives believed that Mark and Wright had several conversations, and at one point, he asked Wright to murder his wife as soon as possible. In one of the text messages police read, Mark said that he didn't want to use secure texts on their personal cell phones because nothing is really secure out there. So Mark bought them both burner phones with prepaid minutes, and then they would text each other when they needed to check that phone. So Kathy, this is what I thought was funny. So if they wanted to talk on their burner phones as opposed to their personal cell phones, they would send each other a text on their personal cells that used the word other in it. So Mark would send a text to Wright that said, hello, brother, from an, in quotes, other mother. (laughs) Not rocket scientists, these guys. And this was their signal to use the burner. Now, despite the continuous texting between the two, Wright's phone went dark for 48 hours surrounding the time of Teresa Seavers' death. Almost three months after the gripping headlines that Mark Seavers helped orchestrate his wife's killing, he was arrested and charged with second-degree murder and his wife's death. On February 26, 2016, after deputies perp-walked Seavers in front of the local media, Sheriff Scott said, Mark was stoic when deputies arrested him. He said, I'm not 100% sure he's got blood in his veins. I think it might be ice. I'm just guessing, but was he up for re-election? Because <laughs> I'm like, thinking yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a line, you know, he laid up in bed at night. Like, what am I going to say? I got it. I know. but I'm going to get those votes. I love that he perp-walked this guy. 
Mark's arrest came after his childhood friend Wayne Wright pleaded guilty to a second-degree murder charge in connection with Teresa's death. The plea agreement, which was reached the week before Mark's arrest, required a 25-year prison term and that Wright would provide substantial assistance to prosecutors. And by the way, Kath, I read somewhere that Florida law requires that you serve at least 85% of your sentence before being released. The same day Mark was arrested, a Lee County Circuit judge ordered Mark held on $4.43 million bond. Hmm. (laughs) Did he just pull that number out of the air? I love that. The prosecutor apparently asked for the same amount that she had in life insurance. So I think that's brilliant. I love it. So, Kath, just to deviate for a second, I saw an article about a month after Mark was arrested that I thought was kind of amusing. It was a front page article in the Naples Daily News by Kristen Gill. This was March 28th of 2016. And the article was about the commissary purchases the three arrested men had made. Okay, that is weird. It is. And (laughs) why is that public? I I don't know, but it's just kind of a random thing to write an article on. I think it's filler. And by the way, this day that it appeared was the day after Easter. Oh, seriously? (laughs) And I was like, oh, somebody needed filler. Right, exactly. really did. Everybody was on vacation. (laughs) Right. But here's what was interesting. So Mark had been in jail for about a month. And in that month, he had spent $200 at the jail's commissary. He purchased a number of things, but it included triple antibiotic cream and cocoa butter lotion, clothes, which were tops, pants, and boxers. And I wasn't aware that they had to buy their own clothes in Florida. Nor I playing cards, and a little bit of junk food, chocolate chip cookies, fudge brownies, and strawberry Pop-Tarts, which unless you got a toaster, I just don't think you can do that. I agree. And besides, they're not good anyway. Like the cinnamon ones rock. Oh, the chocolate fudge ones Uh, rock. Oh, you're wrong. Like cinnamon. But you need a toaster for sure for any of those. Definitely. And I'm not sure they allow prisoners to have those. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jimmy Rogers had spent just almost $40. He purchased Now and Later Candy a bag of peppermints, some butterscotch candy, and some of those Hostess honey buns. I used to be a total now and later addict in high school. I remember that. When we were growing up, we used to try and make retainers out of now and later. Oh yeah, totally. (laughs) Oh, I forgot about that. You're right. So Wayne Wright, Mark's best friend, we talked about the fact that he and his wife were so poor that his in-laws actually had to buy them groceries every month to make sure they could eat. In the six months that Wayne had been in jail, He spent $850 in the commissary. Where did he get the money? Did it say? No, but I would love to know where that came from. Because Jimmy Rogers, who went in at the same time, he's the one who spent $39.50. Right. But here's what got bad. They talked about what he purchased and somewhere necessities, a washcloth. Apparently, they don't get real toothbrushes because I think you can make them into shanks. So they were finger toothbrushes like the plastic ones. Oh, okay. Dandruff shampoo. But most of his money was spent on junk food. You know, the guy is so bored. He's like, I might as well eat myself to death. Exactly. His favorites were banana moon pies. Oh, serious? Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer, that's a shout out Maybe to you. Maybe he'd been to Chattanooga. <laughs> <laughs> Jumbo honey buns, uh-huh. not just those basic honey buns that Rogers was getting, <laughs> and root beer barrels. This was the part of the article that I take exception to, because as you were saying, he's like, screw this. I'm in jail. I'm just eating food. Right. The article said that he also purchased boxers, but they printed the size triple XL. There is no fat shaming for people in jail. No. I mean, not anywhere. You know, she was like, 
should I put his boxer size in or should I not? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, she was like, look at all this candy he's eating. And it was the day after Easter and there were no editors to be seen. So she's like, all right, I might as well just put the boxer size in. <laughs> but no fat shaming anyway, but not when you're in jail. You get to eat what you want, Petunia. Exactly. On May 4th, 2016, two months after Mark was arrested and eight months after Jimmy Rogers was arrested, a Lee County grand jury indicted both men on first-degree murder charges. So this is murder with premeditation. We talked about this a little bit off microphone, but why were they not charged with this in the first place? I mean, Mark, he's kind of out of that equation for now, but if you intentionally drive 1,200 miles in a rental car to someone's house to kill them, there has to be maybe a tiny bit of premeditation involved. But maybe because Wayne flipped, and he flipped pretty early on. Maybe he told the detective something that they were like, oh, there was something unexpected that happened during this murder or something like that. Good speculation. I like that. But I am speculating. No, 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 it is, but I like it. I actually think that makes a lot of sense. You know, so mm, anyway, if convicted, both men could face either life in prison or the death penalty. Prosecutors would not tell the press which sentence they would be seeking. But with the upgraded charge, the judge declined to set a bond for Mark. Now, Rogers was already being held without bond, and at the arraignment, both men pleaded not guilty. Jimmy Rogers was tried first. His trial began on October 10th of 2019, a little over four years after Teresa Severs was murdered. And Kath, the strategy of the defense team was to show that he was arrested simply because this was a high-profile case, police had no other leads, and they had nothing connecting him to the crime. They asked the jury to listen closely to the evidence presented because it did not reach a first-degree murder level. Jimmy's defense attorneys were basically saying, hey, there's really nothing connecting Jimmy to this plot. His buddy Wayne called him and said, hey, let's go to Florida together. I'm going to go fix this guy's computer. And Jimmy was like, sounds good. I'll go with you. So they were basically saying there's actually nothing nefarious about Jimmy hopping into the car and going on a road trip. Jimmy Rogers did not take the stand in his own defense, and the defense team did not call any witnesses. They relied exclusively on their cross-examination of the prosecution's witnesses. After seven days of trial, the case went to the jury, and they deliberated for more than 13 hours. Ultimately, on October 24, 2019, the jury of five men and seven women found 29-year-old Jimmy Rogers guilty of second-degree murder and he was sentenced to life in prison. After several delays, trial began for Mark Seavers on November 20th, 2019, four weeks after his co-defendant was convicted of the lesser charge of second-degree murder. Wayne Wright, who entered a plea deal after being arrested in 2015, was the prosecution's key witness. Wright confirmed that he and Mark had known each other since the ninth grade, and Mark had been the best man at his May 2015 wedding. According to court records, Wright testified that the murder of Dr. Teresa Seavers marked the culmination of a plot that began weeks earlier when Mark Seavers was in Missouri for Wright's wedding. It was over the course of several conversations during this wedding weekend that Mark asked his longtime friend to murder his wife as soon as possible. Wright said that he was initially uncertain but eventually agreed to take care of it for at least $100,000 in life insurance proceeds. And Kathy, when Wright got Rogers to take part in this plot, he offered him ten grand. Oh, Rogers had no idea he was being lowballed. Exactly. 
in his trial testimony, Wright said that he brought Jimmy Rogers in to be the killer because he saw Rogers as somebody who would actually be able to kill someone. Wright told the jury that Mark had no idea that Wright had brought someone into the plot because Mark had explicitly told him that he did not want to know the identity of any accomplice that Wright might hire. Wright testified that he and Rogers arrived in Bonita Springs early in the morning on June 28th. This is the day of the murder. They first stopped at the Seavers' home and left after a brief visit. At around 10.30 p.m., he and Rogers returned to the Seavers' residence. They put on coveralls and gloves and made pry marks on the already unlocked side door to make it look like a burglary. Thinking Teresa Seavers would arrive at midnight, Wright and Rogers were startled when they were in the garage and then heard the garage door open shortly before 11.25. Wright and Rogers scrambled to hide so that they would be concealed as she pulled the car in. And Kathy, I saw pictures of it. I think you probably did too. This is a lesson in why you need a clean garage. Which I don't have, but anyway. (laughs) They had a ton of places to hide. Teresa Seavers drives in and parks her car. And as they're watching, she retrieves her luggage and enters the house. They followed her into the house, picking up hammers that were lying on top of the garage freezer on their way inside. As Wright walked into the kitchen, he tripped on a dog dish, startling Teresa Seavers, who turned toward them at the noise. Honestly, reading this scared the crap out of me. I can't even imagine that poor woman. Her electric garage door goes down as she pulls her car in. She's getting out completely unassuming. And then you hear a noise, you turn around two strangers in your kitchen. Ugh. Wright testified that he struck her head once and swung two more times while she put up her hands to defend herself. At this point, Rogers began to attack her as well. Using a different hammer, Rogers bludgeoned her in the head over and over and over. Eventually, she fell silent as she fell to the floor, where Rogers continued to hit her until Wright made him stop. Certain that she was dead, Wright and Rogers left the house and drove back to Missouri. The prosecution corroborated Wright's account with cell phone, GPS, video surveillance records and all that kind of stuff that documented Mark Seaver's painstaking planning and Wright's location in the weeks before and immediately after the murder. They also presented the backpack, shoes, shirts we previously mentioned that were purchased at the Lee County Walmart on the day of the murder. The state also introduced fibers that came from Rogers' discarded coveralls, and these fibers were consistent with fibers found on Dr. Seaver's corpse as well as in the rental car. Mark Seavers did not testify at trial. In closing, his defense counsel argued that there was no credible evidence connecting Mark to the crime. According to his attorney, the prosecution had done nothing more than prove that Wright and Rogers and not Mark, had murdered Teresa Seavers. On December 4, 2019, a jury found Mark Seavers guilty of first-degree premeditated murder and conspiracy to commit murder. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. 
Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Following the jury's recommendation, the judge sentenced him to death as well as to a consecutive 30-year sentence for the conspiracy conviction. In November of 2022, the Supreme Court of Florida upheld Mark Seaver's convictions and his sentences for both crimes. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the story as much as we enjoyed telling it. (laughs) Rate us. Review us Mm -hmm. and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Only five stars are allowed. Remember that. (laughs) 